0: Let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord God, we've heard uh, quite a number of things this morning about how we are called to live uh, for and glorify you. Um, And Lord, as we uh, approach your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to do that Um, in this psalm. Uh, There is much that is spoken about someone who does not fear you, and uh, there is stuff that is spoken about those who do fear you. So, Lord, I pray that we would be those uh, who hear and who obey uh, according to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, We've been working our way through the Psalms uh, over this uh, the last six weeks or so. Uh, And last week we, uh, or my dad preached from uh, Psalm 9, Um, those of you who were here last week might remember the uh, final verse of that, Uh, the final line uh, was that a prayer that God would uh, remind the great people of the world that they are but men. Uh, And Dad illustrated that uh, by pointing to some of the sorts of people that we look up to, uh, those who um, seem to do superhuman feats of of, uh, physicality or creativity or intelligence. Uh, But as we start uh, Psalm 10 this week, the psalm points us to a a very different kind of great person. Um, And I say that in some ways kind of ironically. Uh, This sort of greatness is darker. It is the form of greatness where the person becomes great and powerful by oppressing and exploiting others. Uh, Beck and I were watching a new movie the other week. Um, And one of the central characters of this movie illustrates this quite well. Uh, The character was portrayed as this this great businessman, a uh, a sort of um, the the uber-rich tech mogul, a brilliant entrepreneur, um, and uh, and he was supposed to be sort of this great and respected person. Um, But the big twist of the movie was that this brilliant entrepreneur that everyone respected really wasn't that brilliant. In fact, all his wealth and power and respect came by his ruthlessly controlling and exploiting those who were actually smart and actually creative and actually extraordinary. And Now, naturally, of course, this revelation made this character the villain of the movie from that point on. Uh, now, some of, if, uh, some of the more cynical among you might say that all uh, great and wealthy people are like that. Uh, I think that was certainly the message the movie was trying to, create, to, to portray, but uh, I'm in no position to make judgment calls like that. But at the very least, this movie was trying to raise questions about the sorts of people that we call great, the sorts of people that we respect, Um, Especially those who really have come to power uh, or to attain wealth or or influence through these sort of exploitative means. How can they get away with that? What kind of society do we live in uh, where people don't just get away with getting rich by exploiting others but they're revered and and respected and even protected from scrutiny by the very people they exploit. Those are the sorts of questions this movie was raising. And indeed these are the sorts of questions that Psalm 10 raises. We're going to explore Psalm 10 this morning by looking at two questions that the te- the text sort of raises for us. Two types of people it it talks about. Now the first type of person, the first question that we we could raise is what kind of person would oppress others for personal gain? What kind of person would do that? Now look with me again at the first 11 verses. Uh, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims like a lion in cover. He lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed, they collapse, they fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. This sort of person is, is, is a real villain. He's the sort of person that you love to hate. He's evil, cunning, conniving. He makes plans and he hides and carries them out, springing in ambush, on unsuspecting innocent victims. What an awful person. It's like a greedy lion, says the psalm. The top of the food chain. Eating whomever he wants, whenever he wants. He's uh, in a dog-eat-dog world. He is the top dog. And he's eaten his way to the top. He is the top dog and he's got there by being the most cunning, the most ruthless, the most exploitative dog in the pack he oppresses the poor and gets rich doing so again this is a loathsome person and the psalmist expresses that he's frustrated as you see in verse 1 why lord do you stand far off why do you hide yourself in times of trouble why is he getting away with this why are you letting him get away with this god He's a villain. He's a dirty, rotten scumbag. He's a psychopath with complete disregard for the lives of others around him. God, this is exactly the sort of thing you should be putting a stop to. You need to put a stop to him because he thinks he's getting away with it. You're hiding yourself in the day of trouble, says the psalmist, and this man is taking note. Again, verse 11, he says to himself, God will never notice. He hides his face and never sees. And that, that mentality that he's getting away with it is, is what's at the core of this man's actions. <clears throat> Fundamentally, the reason this man acts the way he does is because he has made himself convinced that God will not do anything. He's put God out of the picture, verse 4, in all his thoughts there is no room for God, or as the ESV puts it, all his thoughts are there is no God. And so there's no because there's no room for God, he has no need to fear, because there's no higher power who will put him in his place. Of course, ironically, he can't actually escape the fact that God does exist, so he has to still sort of assure himself in other ways as well. Uh, verse 11 he says God will never notice he covers his face and never sees and then verse 13 he won't call me to account so you sort of have to ask which of it is it does God not exist or does he is he blind or is he forgetful which one but whether or not God does whether God doesn't exist or he does exist and he doesn't see or he does see, but he doesn't remember. Or he does remember, but he doesn't care. Or he does care, but he doesn't judge. Whichever of these ones it is, it doesn't really matter to this man, because what he, because what it makes him do, is not fear the conscience uh, or the consequences of his actions. He's not worried about any sort of consequences for his actions. He is utterly confident of his own security. As verse 6 says, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. And there's a logical relationship here. The oppression naturally flows out of this godlessness. If you don't fear a God who will punish you. What is to stop you from doing harm? Your only reason not to do something is, is limited by how big the consequences are. You know, I probably won't get caught and even if I do, I think it's going to be worth it. See, the fact is this person isn't some sort of extra special evil person, this is just any old person who's managed to convince himself that he will get away with it. The truth of it is we all have it in us to be like the person that this psalm describes. All of us conveniently, well not consciously all of the time, but, but functionally, we all conveniently forget that God exists whenever we want something. It's an interesting pattern there, isn't it? Or, or maybe we do remember that God exists, but we convince ourselves that he's going to overlook whatever I'm about to do. Or we remember that God sees and knows everything, but we tell ourselves, it's okay, we're, we're cool, God's going God's God's to be fine with this, he's, he'll forgive me. We all do it. This is our human nature. What kind of person would oppress others for personal gain? All of us would do that, as long as we can figure out how we can get away with it. And so Paul quoted this psalm in Romans 3, where where he's trying to show that everyone in the world is corrupt and sinful. All are under sin, Paul writes, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And from Psalm 10 he quotes, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's Paul quoting Psalm 10, verse 7, saying this isn't, again, this isn't some extra special evil person out there. This is every single person who ever lived. (coughs) Every one of us is like this, says Paul. All are under sin. Every mouth will be stopped. No one has any excuse. The whole world will be held accountable to God. maybe you want to say uh, you really want me to believe that anyone in the world could be like this psychopath from Psalm 10 including me yes yes that's exactly what I'm saying more accurately that is exactly what God is saying through his word Anyone who thinks they can get away with it will take what they want and maybe they'll even try knowing they won't get away with it if they really want it badly enough. What do you think would happen if there were no police, no laws, no consequences for anything we do? Do you think society would prosper? Each of us, everyone would sort of mind their own business and work together for the common good? Of course not. Because what do we call that sort of society? Anarchy. And what do we associate with anarchy? Rioting, looting, theft, murder, everything that this Psalm 10 describes. The strongest people getting whatever they want and everyone else living in fear of them, trying to make the best they can of it. The very reason we have laws is because each and every person would soon default to being this person in Psalm 10. We would use our power and wealth or, and our influence, however small that may be, to get whatever we want as much as we can. Generally speaking, the reason we resent this sort of person in Psalm 10 who's, who's at the top of this sort of dog-eat-dog world the reason we resent them is because we want to be them. At the end of the day, we in the same in the same circumstance given the opportunity, we would be exactly the same. That is our sinful default approach to life. In fact, it's not just that we would be like that. As I said, we all use our influence and and authority and opportunities as small as they may be to do whatever we can each and every day we're constantly on the lookout for things that will benefit us for opportunities that we can do things and not be caught what do you do when your boss leaves the room what do you do while your husband or wife is sleeping what do you do when you have the house to yourself Or maybe you're not even that subtle. Maybe you use your God-given authority to make life better for yourself. You send your junior employees to do the jobs that you don't want to do. You enslave your kids to the desires and goals and aspirations that you have. You tell your wife to give you what you want because that's what submission means. We are all this wicked person that Psalm 10 describes. We are all exploiters and oppressors in our everyday human selfishness. Our natural predisposition is to do what will be best is not to do what will be best for others but to be do what is, will be best for ourselves, given the opportunity we are all the person in this psalm to a greater or lesser degree when the opportunity presents itself. We tell ourselves there will be no consequences that what they don 't know won 't hurt them. we pretend god doesn 't exist and if We remember that he does, we assure ourselves that we'll get away with it anyway. And as a result, we all oppress others for personal gain. The real question isn't what kind of person would do this, but who wouldn't do this? What kind of person wouldn't oppress others for personal gain? And that's what the rest of the psalm explains. Let's read verses 12 to 18. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. In these verses, David demonstrates what characterizes the sort of person who won't oppress others for personal gain. In, a, in, in short, the per, sort of person who doesn't oppress others for personal gain is someone who trusts and fears God. He trusts God because he knows that God helps the helpless. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. At the same time, he fears God because he knows that God is a God who crushes the oppressor. As he says, break the arm of the wicked man, call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The nations will perish from his land so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. This sort of attitude towards God is is in such a stark contrast to the previous verses. The person in the first half of the psalm trusted their own power and wealth. In their own ability to accumulate power and wealth. That person feared nothing. He quashed his conscience with his assurance that God doesn't exist and doesn't know and doesn't judge. But David, exemplifying the person who, the, the righteous person, trusts God, the defender of the weak, and fears God, the judge of the self seeking because he trusts God he doesn't have the he doesn't feel the need to take what he wants from life because he knows that everything he needs will be provided by God because he fears God he refuses to oppress people who are made in the image of God who are held and sustained and protected in the care of God instead this person humbles himself under the care and judgment of God <coughs> Now, as I mentioned, David is the one who wrote this psalm. Uh, In all likelihood, the previous psalm's uh, title introduction there uh, is meant to uh, carry over both Psalm 9 and 10. Uh, David would have written both as a matching pair. So what we have here is the great and powerful King David praying in desperation to God, the God who helps the helpless and crushes the oppressor. On David's lips, this psalm is an expression of profound humility. A great respected king, the most rich and powerful person in Palestine in his day, aligning himself with the poverty-stricken, the orphan, the victimized, the oppressed. And this is not just David expressing a a sort of false humility uh, or even merely just a Uh, compassion and empathy David is here recognizing and acknowledging his humanity before the almighty all-powerful all-seeing all-encompassing all-transcending God this humility this acknowledgement of neediness and weakness is what God looks for in his people and in his king he doesn't raise up the person who has the most willpower or might, uh, or wealth, or influence over his people. Instead, he raises up the king, who is the servant of all. The king who gave his life in cruel crucifixion as a ransom for many. I'm speaking about Jesus, of course, who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. And it's for that reason, that humility, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. No one has humbled themselves more than Jesus, and so God has raised him up higher than any other. And likewise for us, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, means submitting ourselves to this king, following following him in his way of sacrifice. It means owning our helplessness and committing ourselves to the mercy of God. It means confessing our sins rather than hiding ourselves from the all-seeing judge. It means sacrificing ourselves for others' gain. The scripture says, whoever humbles, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, but whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The Christian way is never to scrap or claw our way to the top. The Christian way is never to seek our own gain at the expense of others. The Christian way, the way of Christ, is to seek others' gain through the sacrifice of ourselves. And this should have huge implications for the way we live in this world. We, as Christians, uh, give credit and express honour as often as you you can. Avoid shifting the blame and take the flack on yourself. It it might mean that your time and money and possessions aren't your own, but you give them freely to all in need. It it might mean that your time and energy uh, you give to the members of your household and open your home and empty your pantry so that friends and neighbours and even strangers can enjoy the warmth of family. It might mean that you give up higher pay or opportunities for power if you can advantage or honour other people through your sacrifice. It might mean that you refuse to take make demands of the people you have authority over. Put your efforts instead into supporting and getting the best out of them. It might mean seeing your retirement not as an opportunity to relax and have endless holidays. Instead, your your retirement might be an, oppor- an opportunity to have extra time to serve and bless others. As Christians, we should rejoice. To make ourselves poor, to make others rich, because God has done that for us. Our God is a God who humble, who honors and upholds those who willingly give of themselves for the sake of love and for his glory. And our God is a God who will deliver and bless his people in the world to come. That's hard to believe when it's just words. We live in a world uh, where the strong seem to get what they want, as as David expresses here in this psalm. We're surrounded by people who really do scrap and fight their way to the top. It, It seems to work. They get away with it. We get caught up in that it's easy to follow that way and and return evil for evil to try and beat these sort of people at their own game. On the other hand, it's hard, really hard, to believe that submitting to God and sacrificing ourselves is actually the best way. You, You can even hear that in the way that David expresses this psalm, questioning God, why are they getting away with it? Why is the why is oppressing the poor working out for them so well? Why aren't you doing anything to stop them? <clears throat> Excuse me. But David answers his worries and concerns and doubts in verses 16 and 17. The Lord is king forever and ever, the nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Now again, this might just sound like mere words, but they're not just words. David is is here reciting memory verses, as it were, that he's called to mind for a very specific reason. The context of, of each of these quotes that david expresses here is that they come from the exodus narrative Uh, we read earlier uh, tony read for us earlier from exodus 15 uh, and that passage uses that word, that uh, that sentence the lord is king forever and ever that's a song of praise remembering that god brought israel out of egypt the nations perish from his land is, is what we hear described as the conquest of Canaan. God giving the people the promised land under Joshua. God expelled the Canaanites from the land and, and uh, gave his inheritance to his people. God, hearing the desire of the afflicted and, and listening to their cry, recalls are the words that God told Moses when He revealed His plan to bring Israel out of Egypt? God said, "I have seen the misery of My people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering." <clears throat> so David is not just talking about what God is, what He believes God is like. He is looking back on historical evidence of what God is like. David knew that God is a God who delivers his afflicted people because he looked back on history at the deliverance that God had wrought. As David looked back at God's amazing great works of deliverance in the Exodus story, he recognized that that act of deliverance was a pattern, it was typical of the way that God works in history. God's great acts of deliverance in the past give us hope of his deliverance in the future because they show us the way that God normally works and the way that God normally treats his people. God does not change And so we too can look back on history, not just at the Exodus, but on other great acts of deliverance. In fact, the great act of deliverance in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We see the cross, we see the empty tomb, and we know that God is a God who establishes his good rule in the world. God is a God who crushes evil. God is a God who hears and delivers his people when they are poor and afflicted. He even raises the dead. That's who he is. That's what he does. And that gracious character and those loving actions come to a head in the deliverance that Jesus brought us. Deliverance from sin and death that he won as he died and rose again and ascended to heaven. And because we see it in those historical acts of God, we trust that we will see it in the future when Jesus returns. I started by raising questions about uh, the, the... way that people oppress others in this world and the world has no good answer to that they can certainly ask the questions and well might they do so but they can't answer them in a satisfying way there is no hope to be found other than in the gospel because, when we, because the gospel gives us hope in the face of godless oppression the, God, the gospel gives us hope in a dog eat dog world When we see people getting rich off the efforts and pain of others, the gospel assures us that God will not let it stand. God has established his king in humility, crowning him through crucifixion, raising him up through resurrection. And he will do the same for us if we follow him in humility. Let's pray that we would do that. Lord God, we uh, have heard Your words this morning—words of uh, words of Your servant David in uh, in affliction um, and in uh, frustration at the state of the world. Uh, and Lord, we feel that frustration. We know that affliction. We see the oppression that happens in the world. Uh, and Lord, we pray that as we see that, that we would not be caught up, that we would uh, confess to you our own uh, desire, our own selfish, uh, our own selfishness in that we try to seek for our own way. Lord, we pray that we would uh, leave that at the foot of the cross, remembering and trusting that Jesus died to free us from that uh, and submitting in humility to the crucified king the servant king, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that as we submit to him, that you would lead us in the way of the cross to sacrifice ourselves for the gain of others. To your glory. Amen.